Uh, This morning we're going to come back into Galatians. We are now going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. So if you have a Bible, please do turn there. Galatians 3, verses 1 to 9. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Faith's Boundless Blessings. We're going to look at Faith's Boundless Blessings. And I'm going to begin by reading from God's Word, starting at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, you may have already spotted one of the running themes and repeated words in our passage this morning is this word faith. And that's why we're making faith our focus. The question I want to begin by asking this morning And I think it's a question we often ask ourselves as Christians, is what part does faith play in the Christian life? What part does faith play in the Christian life? Is faith just a secondary character in the play, whose main role is in Act 1, Scene 1, the means by which we become a Christian at the very start? And then is it that faith's role kind of fades from view gradually over time? You know, It takes on less and less significance as we grow and shift into human effort? Is that how the Christian life works? Is faith just a free ticket in the door? It gets you entry into God's kingdom, like being generously and unexpectedly given a top job uh, in some company that you didn't really deserve. You know, they, they give you a foot in the door. You get a great head start. They even ignore your failed GCSEs and A levels. They're gracious and they give you the job But now it's up to you to prove your worth, to work your way up in this new position, to earn your annual bonus and prove the company didn't make a mistake in hiring you. Does faith alone just fade from view the longer ago we were hired by Jesus Christ Industries? It's a question that is very relevant to our passage this morning because as we've seen already in this letter, the Galatians had begun to believe that salvation couldn't really be completely by faith alone in Jesus. They'd begun by faith, but now they were feeling they had to add to their faith with something additional. They no longer believed that faith alone could save them. They no longer believed that faith alone could be enough to receive all God's blessings. And so they're thinking about supplementing their faith with human effort. Living as if their ongoing relationship with God and the success of that relationship with God is dependent on their performance. And and the problem is, although we know they're wrong, in reality we often live our Christian lives just like this, don't we? 
We know the Christian life begins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But once it gets going, we can so easily shift gears to living like a lot of the things between us and God really do ride on our performance. If I perform well as a Christian, I'll receive more of God's blessing. But if I fail somehow as a Christian, then, well, I'll expect the opposite from God. Imagine this scenario, which I hope is not too far from home and your own experience. Imagine you had a great start to your day yesterday. Uh, God really spoke to you in your quiet time. As you headed out, the sun was shining. Work was satisfying. You got a great mark maybe on an essay. The buses turn up on time. Traffic lights are green. You didn't get rained on, which is quite a feat at this time of year. Imagine just everything was going your way. And you're thinking to yourself, God is good. God is really blessing me. But then in the evening, you have a massive bust up with a family member. And you say some horrible things, you throw a, throw a fit, you slam the door. Five minutes later, or maybe five hours later, you came back and you said sorry, but now you feel rotten as you go to bed. And as you lie there awake, you think, I am a horrible human being. God must hate me. My family must hate me. There is no way God is going to continue to bless me in the morning. You think about what's often going through your head that next morning when you wake up. How are you feeling about the day ahead? How hopeful are you that things will go well today? Well, if we in any way think that God's blessing depends on our performance, our assumption will be this new day is not going to go well. I have forfeited God's favor and blessings for some undetermined period now. Maybe it's for this morning. Maybe it's for the whole day. Maybe it's for a whole week. And we'll assume that we need to start to slowly work our ways back into God's good books by being especially good, especially kind to the person we weren't so kind to, and especially godly. Like we've got to get ourselves back, work back that debt that we've now taken out against God again. We need to work away our debt once again. Or maybe that's not our problem. Maybe you woke up this morning and that wasn't your concern. Maybe we didn't have an argument with anyone yesterday. Maybe we've been wonderfully godly and kind and hardworking. And so we woke up this morning with high expectations, thinking to ourselves, I've been doing really well. I'm very impressed with me. I think God's impressed with me. God must have some really nice blessings and rewards waiting for me just around the corner today now. My day is going to go so well because I've done so well. So I'm bound, I'm bound to pass my exam, get a pay rise, stay healthy, get a new job, and find that my day is frustration-free. See, that one, it sounds very different to the first scenario, where we thought we were bad Christians, bound to have bad things happen to us, but there's actually very little difference between the two. Deep down in both scenarios, we're assuming our performance as a Christian earns or forfeits God's continued blessing on our lives. Does anyone re relate to that at all? Because I'm just giving you a window into my heart and my week. Every time we think like this and live like this, even though we know we're saved by faith, we are going back to living by the sweat of our own efforts. We're going back to living as if ongoing acceptance with God ultimately relies on rule keeping, and we're living as if genuine Christian growth ultimately depends on us working in our own strength. And this morning, I know that's a long intro, but this morning that is where Paul turns his attention. Not just to how we get saved at the start, 
but also to how we will keep on experiencing God's blessing all throughout the Christian life. And what we're going to find here is this, that quite simply the whole Christian life is meant to be lived by faith from first to last. That we get on in the Christian life the same way we got started and that all the blessings of God, past, present and future, are ours, not by works, but simply through faith in Christ. So I have three headings this morning. We're going to see in this passage, first of all, the blind folly of living by works. Secondly, then we'll see the boundless blessings of living by faith. And thirdly, briefly, the sweeping testimony of the Old Testament. First of all, then, the blind folly of living by works. Uh, Twice in our passage this morning, Paul refers to the Galatians as foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians. Uh, And those are strong words, aren't they, to write to people you care about. I hope that's not the kind of words we usually put in our Christmas cards to the people we love. Oh, you foolish one, happy Christmas. But sometimes as human beings, we do do things that are unbelievably foolish. Like the story of a man I read about this week who woke one morning in the dead of winter to find that the engine of his car had frozen. And so his solution was to pour hot petrol into the fuel tank. And so he took some petrol and he put it in a saucepan and he warmed it on his kitchen stove And as you can guess, it didn't end well. Or the story of the two lorry drivers who stopped before going under a low-hanging bridge to decide whether their lorry would go under it. And the driver pointed out that the bridge only had a clearance of 13 feet 1 inch, and their vehicle required at least 14 feet. But his colleague had an even more astute observation. There weren't any police or cameras around, so we should just chance it and have a go. And so they did, and again, it didn't end well. We all at times do things that are foolish. But nothing in Paul's mind could be more foolish than Christians trying to seek God's blessings by their own efforts. And Christians trying to finish the Christian life in their own strength. Nothing could be more foolish than this. Especially after something the Galatians have seen and witnessed before their very own eyes. Look at verse 1. It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The Galatians had seen Christ die for them. They had seen Christ crucified in their place. They had seen his finished work and heard his dying breath. They had seen him pay the debt of sin in full. And so unlock the floodgates of God's blessing towards sinners. Now, it wasn't, of course, actually that any of the Galatians had actually been there in person on the day of Christ's crucifixion. They hadn't been around the cross on that darkest of all days. But they had had the gospel of Christ preached to them. And they'd seen it with eyes of faith. And that, says Paul, is as good as seeing in person. The preaching of Christ crucified is as good as being there, says Paul. Such is the power of hearing this gospel message. And Paul, when he had first come to them, he had painted for them this billboard-sized portrait of all that Christ had suffered and accomplished on their behalf so that before their very eyes they were witnessing Jesus dying for their sins. And they had believed the message And they had put their trust gladly and solely and completely in the Saviour and the Saviour's death. They had seen it. 
But now, Paul says, it's as if someone has come along and cast a spell on them. As if someone has bewitched them or hypnotized them so that they can no longer see clearly what they once saw so vividly. They can no longer see the gospel of Christ crucified clearly in their mind's eye. It's as if someone has put them under an an enchantment. And uh, my expert knowledge on old Disney movies tells me that it's never a good thing. I think this is the case. I was trying to survey the ones I could remember in my head. Is it always bad to be put under an enchantment? I'm going to say so. Uh, It certainly is here. Maybe it is always in the Disney movies as well. Always bad to be put under an enchantment where we can no longer see things for what they really are. Now, this isn't actually magic or witchcraft that Paul's talking about here, of course, but it's no less serious. The Galatians have been enchanted by false teaching, by teachers who are adding law to faith to produce a Jesus plus gospel. And the Galatians are so enchanted by this. They're so enchanted by this teaching. This this teaching sounds so wonderful and, and impressive and such an upgrade that they can't see what is being done right under their noses to the gospel that they once saw so clearly and loved. And this reminded me of something I saw actually just in the news this week. I've got a picture of it. I don't know if you saw this. Um, This looks a bit like what goes on in Grace Kids. Um, Just last Sunday, two protesters went into the Louvre Museum in Paris and threw bottles of soup all over the Mona Lisa. Uh, Now, fortunately, the painting, of course, is behind bulletproof glass, and so it didn't actually suffer any damage. But what was striking, and there are videos online as well, what was striking was the rapid reaction of everyone there in the museum. All of the other tourists and visitors that you could see, they were understandably aghast at what was happening. They knew this wasn't how you treat the Mona Lisa. But more impressive still was the staff at the museum who swept in immediately and rapidly put up all of these screens around the picture. They didn't want the crowds to see the tarnished and corrupted Mona Lisa. They were immediately taking steps to make the portrait clean and untainted and ready for viewing again. In Galatia, though, it's as if someone has come into this church's gallery and spattered soup all over the portrait of Christ crucified. Someone has thrown law and works and human effort over the top of faith alone, and the Galatians haven't batted an eyelid. They haven't even noticed the messy addition. Or if they have, they've come under the spell of the false teachers. They're listening to the soup throwers and are starting to think the Mona Lisa might actually look and work better like this. You know, maybe da Vinci always intended it to look this way. Maybe God always intended the gospel to look this way, with works and efforts spattered all over the top. Well, it's no wonder then, is it, that Paul is so upset and so concerned for them. Like at the Louvre, the Galatian church needed a gospel portrait cleanup crew to come in urgently. And we need that same gospel portrait cleanup crew to come back regularly into our minds and hearts as well. Fortunately, Paul is eager to serve both them and us. First of all, by reminding us of what we've seen as he's just done, that our Christian lives, they began at the very moment where we first saw and trusted in Christ's finished work. I love that, how the Christian life begins at the end. It begins at the finished work of Christ. But the second thing we need to be reminded of is where Paul goes next. 
that every blessing that comes to us subsequently in the Christian life comes to us not because we go on then to earn it or work for our salvation, but simply because we continue to live by faith in the gospel of Christ. So in verses 2 to 5, through a series of these sort of rhetorical questions, and they're easy answer questions, so don't panic, um, Paul sets before us the boundless blessings of living by faith. That's the second heading this morning. The boundless blessings of living by faith. Paul's aim all throughout this passage is to wake the Galatians up to realizing how it is that we receive God's richest blessings. And immediately now he goes straight for one of the top prizes. Three times in these, in these middle verses, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, when you think about it, is one of the greatest blessings that God could ever give to a Christian. God's own holy presence coming to live in us. It's the, it was the dream of God's Old Testament people. The promise they just longed for and looked forward to. But now we have the Spirit dwelling within us. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us to bring us a multitude of blessings. He convicts us of sin. He leads us <clears throat> to repentance. He assures us of salvation. He, sh- he sheds abroad God's love in our hearts. And there's so much more. And also, as we're going to see in more detail later in Galatians, he comes to bear abundant spiritual fruit in our lives. If you're a Christian here this morning, the Spirit is living within you, and he is intent on gradually and increasingly, as the years go by, bearing his spiritual fruit in your life. And this fruit, I want to say it only struck me this week, but you're probably going to think I'm I'm a real simpleton. Um, Maybe this has been obvious. But this fruit, it consists of precisely the things we naturally think about when we say, I want to grow as a Christian. Whenever we ask the question, how can I grow as a Christian, really what we're asking is, how can I grow in love? How can I grow in joy? How can I grow in peace? How can I grow in patience? How can I grow in kindness? How can I grow in goodness? How can I grow in faithfulness? How can I grow in gentleness? How can I grow in self-control? Well, all of these things, of course, are the very fruits of the Spirit that get listed later in Galatians 5. The things that Paul says the Spirit will bring about increasingly in our lives now that he lives within us. The Holy Spirit is committed to transforming us from the inside out as he imparts to our hearts more and more of a desire for these good and godly fruits. So the Spirit, without question, is the fundamental means by which any of us are ever going to grow as Christians. It's by the Spirit. Okay, says Paul. Now let me ask you only this. How did you first receive the Spirit, verse 2? Was it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Was the Holy Spirit given to us in response to us keeping God's law? Or was he given to us in response to us casting ourselves as empty-handed sinners upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the answer, of course, is the latter. It's by hearing with faith. We heard with faith and the Spirit came. The Christian life begins by receiving the Spirit. And we receive the Spirit when we responded to the gospel by faith. Meaning, the greatest blessing, in one of the greatest blessings in all of the Christian life comes right at the start of our Christian life 
and in response not to our works, but to our faith. Maybe you can already see where Paul is going with this. If the Christian life is lived in the Spirit, if the Christian life is a Spirit-empowered life, which it is, then it must be a life of faith, not law, because we receive the Spirit by faith. Philip Ryken says the question Paul asked them was a real no-brainer. They didn't have to do anything to get the Holy Spirit. In fact, they had received the Spirit long before the Judaizers came to tell them they had to keep the law. They simply trusted in what Jesus had done on the cross and through the empty tomb. Thus, the Spirit's work is not a reward based on a person's own spiritual achievement. It is a gift granted to those who believe in Christ's achievement. Then Paul goes on, verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or to put it another way, what are you doing, having begun with the divine pairing of faith and Spirit, Galatians? This is how you started out, faith and Spirit working together. What are you doing now trying to be perfected by law and flesh? Because that's what adding law-keeping to the gospel does to the Christian life. It robs it of spiritual power. Adding law-keeping to the Christian life robs our life of the Holy Spirit's power. It is choosing to live and grow and be perfected without the Spirit. Now, this reminded me of one of those matching pair games that you, uh, I'm sure we played with our kids. And if you've got small children, you might have played a game like this as well, where you, you sort of keep turning over a couple of tiles, see if you can find a matching pair. Not necessarily identical pictures, but two things that go together. So you'd find sort of uh, salt and pepper, they go together. Bacon and eggs go together. A knife and a fork. Movie and popcorn, a bat and a ball. Pen and paper, they go together. Here Paul is saying, faith and the Holy Spirit go together. They're a matching pair, a winning pair. Like birds of a feather, they flock together. To live by faith is to live by the Spirit. To live by faith in the gospel is to live by the empowering of the Spirit. But if you choose to turn over the law tile, if you choose to go back to living by the works of the law, well, that, that one doesn't go with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, if you are playing with small children, they start to get very upset because you're telling them, sorry, you haven't picked a matching pair and you have to put them back. And there's tears and it's, and it's awful. But, but, you, but you have to be honest. No, that, that law one, it goes with the picture of the person who's got this mighty weight still on their shoulders. Because they've gone back to doing things in their own strength. To pick up works of the law again is to reject the Spirit, Paul is saying. And to reject God's grace and to reject any hope of growth in the Christian life. It is to try and go back to being perfected by the flesh. And it's also to ignore what God's already been doing in your Christian experience so far. Have a look at verse 5 and what Paul says. He goes on, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Haven't you already seen, says Paul, in your Christian experience so far, long before these teachers came in amongst you with their gospel add-ons, haven't you already seen God supplying the Spirit to you and growing you and doing mighty things in your midst, not because of your law-keeping, but simply because at that time, 
Maybe in the early days of being a Christian, you just kept listening to the gospel and hearing it with faith. And the Holy Spirit worked in mighty ways. Hasn't this been our experience as well? Haven't we seen the Holy Spirit most powerfully at work in our lives, in our church's life, making his presence with us most tangible, working the miracle of spiritual growth within us most fruitfully when we have kept ourselves most focused on hearing and trusting and treasuring the gospel of Christ? It is when we have been most gospel-focused in our own lives and in our life as a church that I believe God, through the Holy Spirit, has worked most mightily and fruitfully amongst us. The Christian life is meant to continue exactly as it began, and, and happily so, gladly so, by unapologetic faith in the gospel of Christ. Faith in the gospel is what fuels the Christian life. Every boundless blessing of God that he has intended for our lives, including the Spirit of God working within us, comes to us through our continuing to hear the gospel with faith. We live by faith. We grow by faith. It's faith at the start. It's faith all along the way. It's faith as far as the eye can see. All of the road signs are reminding us faith, 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 all along the way to heaven. And that, finally, Paul says this morning, that is how it's always been. That is how it's always been. And here, Paul begins to do something quite masterful. Here he begins to take the battle against the false teachers right into the enemy's own camp, into the Old Testament. The, the false teachers had no doubt been, been using the Old Testament as their argument. <coughs> Excuse me. Using the Old Testament as their main argument. Paul is, Paul's ignoring everything that's gone before. Look, look at the law in the Old Testament. We need to have this in the Christian life. And so Paul is going to go... Uh, into the enemy camp itself, into the Old Testament. Because here we might expect him to now say more immediately about our new life in the Spirit, about how it's so different to what came before. Perhaps he might say how the false teachers, they are living in the past. They're living in the Old Testament with all of this talk of law. But now the message of God and his blessing, it's all by faith. That's, what, that's where we're at now in the New Testament. We might expect Paul's argument to now go there. And he is going to say more about life in the Spirit later. But for now, Paul is going to go backwards, not forwards. To show, first of all, that God's plan has always been to draw people to himself and to bless them beyond measure, not by law, but by faith. This has always been God's plan. Always been his way of working. And so he begins to set before us, thirdly and finally this morning, the sweeping testimony of the Old Testament, verses 6 to 9. We're only going to dip into this briefly because Paul is actually going to spend the rest of chapters 3 and 4 camped out now in the Old Testament. We, over the coming weeks, we're going to get this rich biblical theology of the Old Testament uh, as Paul prepares to show us in a multitude of ways how salvation and blessing have always come through faith, not works, from promise, not law, right from the very beginning. But for now in our passage this morning, he simply begins by mentioning Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, taking us right back to the earliest pages of the Bible. And it's right back in Genesis 12, 
that we read of God's promise to bless Abraham. And everyone had always rightly recognized that the promises of God that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12 were like the source of the stream out of which all the other blessings of God towards his people would after that flow. So this, these promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, they're like the, 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 the source of the river of all the blessings that are going to flow to God's people afterwards. And then here's the thing, says Paul. In the same way that Christians receive God's blessing, not by works of the law, by simply, but simply by hearing with faith, so too did Abraham. 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham was justified by faith. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham at this point wasn't circumcised. He didn't even have the law, let alone keep the law. He sinned, if you read the story of Abraham, in big and troubling ways on many occasions after these words were spoken to him. He didn't deserve God's blessing one bit. He simply responded to God's words of promise by faith. He trusted quite simply in what God said, and God credited his faith to him as righteousness. It sounds so much like last week, doesn't it? We looked at our, just, our justification by faith. Abraham was the same. Uh, Philip Ryken, I think, explains it really well. He says, to put it in financial terms, God accounted Abraham righteous. Trusting God was like opening a bank account. Immediately, God transferred righteousness into Abraham's account. This doesn't mean that Abraham was actually righteous, only that he was declared righteous. He was considered to have a right standing before God. To use the proper theological term, God imputed righteousness to Abraham. God is the one who has the legal right to state whether a man is righteous or unrighteous. And in this case, he considered Abraham righteous through his faith. Now this, of course, flies in the face of every man-made religion that there has ever been. Every man-made religion that says either you live righteously and God will accept you, or you live unrighteously and God will reject you. It flies in the face of every morning that you and I wake up thinking God is going to be against me today because I messed up such a big way yesterday. It flies in the face of that. Because here Paul is saying that God has always made it so clear that it is possible to be loved and accepted and blessed by God while we ourselves are sinful and full of imperfections. That's what Abraham was. A sinner justified by faith. Simultaneously righteous and sinful before God. Righteous in God's sight, justified by faith. And Paul is saying unashamedly here, Christians, be like Abraham. It's just like the old meme. And I thought about showing one of these, and I thought, no, maybe it's not, not the best time. But do you remember the, um, a few years ago, Be Like Bob? Uh, anyone? Was that deflated from memory? Okay. There were these memes that went around. It was like, Be Like Bob. Bob. Bob does this. Bob does that. Bob's very sensible. You should be like Bob. Okay, I thought that'd be more helpful. Anyway, <laughs> Paul is saying, Christians, be like Abraham. In fact, he says, so long as you live by faith and don't go back to works of the law, you already are like Abraham. You couldn't be more like him. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. We are, we are the children of Abraham. 
And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand, 2,000 years beforehand, to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This has always been the big sweeping storyline and testimony of the whole Bible. This has always been the only way of salvation and the only way to both become and then live as a child of God by faith in the promises about Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you are living by faith in the gospel of Christ, then you are already a true child of Abraham. You are an inheritor of all the blessings and promises that were made to him. You are a genuine member of God's family. God with you, you in God's family and God's favor resting on you now this morning and forevermore. As it says in Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing is now ours through faith in Christ. And it says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So, look, look, and look again to Christ and him crucified. That is Paul's resounding message and exhortation today. The Galatians, as we saw at the beginning, they'd fallen under this terrible spell. They had allowed themselves to be blinded to the message of the cross. And what they needed now more than anything else to break the spell was to look again to the cross of Jesus. Look, look And look again to the cross. They needed to return again to what Paul had preached to them right back in the very beginning of their Christian lives. The message of Christ and him crucified. Because that's the image that will break the spell. That's the image that will break the spell of false gospels again and again and again. That's the message that shatters our legalistic tendencies and always removes all of our fears of judgment again and again and again. This message, this beautiful portrait of Christ crucified, we never outgrow it. We never exhaust our need for it. It is not just for unbelievers or new believers, but all believers always. And what we need more than anything else is just to continually return to it and fix our gaze upon it and anchor our hearts to it day after day. What we need is to preach this gospel to ourselves and to each other every single day. I know many of us will be already familiar with the famous words of Robert Murray McShane, but I make no apology for sharing them again. He hits the nail on the head. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Now that's wonderful advice in itself, but maybe we're not familiar so much with the next bit. Here is why McShane says to keep looking at Jesus. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. At the cross, we are reminded that Christ has done everything necessary in our place. At the cross, we can live much in the smiles of God and we can feel his all-seeing eye settled on us in love always. At the cross, we remember that it would be folly to even begin to add to what Christ has accomplished. 
And better still, at the cross, we're reminded that there's never any need for us to do so. And so then, unbewitched and with clear 2020 gospel sight, as we look again and again at Christ and him crucified, we are enabled to go on living and growing in the Spirit's power by faith and faith alone each day. And by the Spirit's power, grow, we surely will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Christian life is not one lived by works of the law, continually wrestling with whether or not we've done enough to earn your favor and blessing. Oh Lord, we know we could never do enough. And if that were the gospel, then every one of us would be lost and without hope. But oh, how we thank you this morning that the Christian life is one that you have designed to be lived by faith and in the Spirit as we simply go on trusting in the all-sufficient work of our Saviour. Lord, please help us not to move on or move back from the gospel. Please protect us from being bewitched by false gospels and false teaching and even from being bewitched by our own hearts as they sometimes tell us we couldn't possibly be justified in your sight. Oh Lord, you have justified us by faith and you have made us your children by faith and you have given us your spirit by faith. May we therefore go on living by faith, resting in the finished work of Christ and joyfully cooperating with your spirit as he produces more and more of his fruit, his wonderful fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for the glory of your name. Amen.